Thanks for listening to Most Certainly True, a podcast of Grace Lutheran Church in downtown Milwaukee. This fall, we are reading through a book from the People's Bible Teaching Series called Civil Government. Contact our church office for information about purchasing the book from us, find it at www.nph.net, or just join us and enjoy the conversation. We're glad to have you listening either way. God calls us to be citizens in two kingdoms. We are members of the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus. And we are also members of an earthly kingdom, subject to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. We'll see what God says to us about that second kingdom and how we can serve Jesus as a citizen of both. Welcome back, faithful podcast listeners. Glad to have you tuning in to another episode of Most Certainly True Podcast. I'm here with Pastor Huebner. How are you today? Good, Pastor Hockman. Nice to see you. Great yeah. to be here. Beautiful, sunny end of October yeah. day. So we're need, time stamping this podcast. The, you need me to pull the shades? No, or? I'd like that. That's, yeah, it that's makes good. the office uh, like 10 degrees warmer when the yeah. sun is shining Hopefully in there. that the sun will swing around a little more and we can maybe get the, <laughs> another layer of freckles. I'm not going to get a tan. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. But it's like sunbathing under a screen door. You know, every spring and summer I'll get another layer. So <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's worth it though, huh? That, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so these sunny days always remind me of, now this would be spring, but the spring days like this in Alaska where it's still pretty cold out, but the sun is coming back. It's like life is coming yeah. back. And that yeah. was always February, March was always the favorite. Get the more radical the swing time. of the time. It's bad enough here in the Midwest. We're nowhere near what you experienced in the state of Alaska. But, um, you know, like, when we're looking at time change coming and because Anna and I are up early, you know, and then it's, you look out and it's dark, dark for a long time. We're coming down to church on a Sunday morning. We're going to be here pretty early before the first service. Dark. Well, the time will change, and we get to the beginning of November, and that'll okay. But then that means by the afternoon, 4 o'clock, it's pretty dark already. Yep. <laughs> when do you want it? <laughs> the day's yeah. going to be short yeah. when it's uh, this time of year, regardless of daylight savings time, right? I'm not a fan. I just I know it's winter, and I know we live here, and I love living here, and it's great being in the Midwest, especially in Milwaukee with our great city and all the opportunities God gives us to serve and touch people, but there is something about the darkness and the cold weather. It's, I'm not a fan. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Are you going to retire down south someday? Wouldn't that be a nice thought? But uh, it has a lot to do with uh, have you been able to do that or not. Then you have grandkids. Yeah. and you They're kind of a magnet. One thing Arizona doesn't have is uh, Grace Lutheran Church in downtown Milwaukee. And there's they actually so. have Grace Lutheran Church in downtown Tucson. <laughs> there are a few Graces down there, yes, but yeah. not the one that you love. Not the one that's no. <laughs> that's where my where my heart is, and it's hard to picture in spite of the cold yeah. being anywhere else. I mean, I I it's love hard warm for temperature, all of us but, to picture. I'm sure you yeah. especially. <laughs> Too fun. Yeah, so we're we're doing another two chapters of our book, Civil Government. Yeah. Uh, I've been really enjoying the the read through it, and it really the reminder and encouragement that Professor Deutschlander has been able to give through yeah, his is it, book. Is it uh, totally out of place that we're here? We are reviewing this grand book. We've done a Daniel Deutschlander book called Grace Abounds on Theology in a podcast series in our Sunday Bible class. Back up. Uh, Support of it. Now we're doing another one, and the Lord called him to heaven. To this talk past about week. the victory of a saint, never yeah. out of place. Yeah. So yeah. isn't that something that just his? We're doing a podcast on his book, and the Lord chose through the coronavirus complicating his COPD that at his uh, upper seventies, almost eighty age, 
decided to call him home, and he's got his victory. Yeah, bittersweet. Uh, sad for us to not get more works like this to enjoy and more um, yeah. lectures that he loved to give or just personal you conversations. I did have him in class. You did? Yes. Uh, was at MLC? At MLC. He was in, in for German. German. Yep. For German. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I was too chicken to take his history electives. Were they electives they were, in history? Oh, yeah. They were they would be uh, probably demanding a lot of reading. Very demanding. Came with uh, 1,500 pages uh, reading and then a, a book report. That was the assignment at the end of it. And, yeah. Uh, lots of big assigned reading. Yeah, yeah. But the people that uh, weren't chicken like me uh, really, uh, really enjoyed and those were usually yeah. their favorite class. So. He's, he's ahead of me in age, you know, by maybe a decade. But I, I had come to know him as a personal friend over the years, and we'd intersect while he was at the college, either in when Watertown or relocated to New Ulm, and, and had a chance to intersect with him by way of email and communication on different topics. And when I served in the district presidium, I invited him to be a speaker at our district convention. And he's even had a chance when he was in the area, you were around that one time, wasn't it fairly recently when he came to visit at Grace? And worshipped and stuff like that. Yeah, so it was he came nice to a to Monday night service. Yeah, yeah, it was so, nice to see him. And There's always uh, enough butterflies in the stomach when you're about to get in the pulpit, and then Professor Deutschlander walks in the door. Yeah, well, uh, you had him in class. I never had him in <laughs> class, so that's we just had a personal friendship. And we've, you know, because he also had not only a, a, a love for theology and, and um, the Holy Scriptures, of course, is based on his love for the Savior, but uh, he had a love for the arts and music, you know, so concerts and things like that were something that he appreciated. And so it was it, over over the decades. It was fun to intersect with him, and yeah, he just One, appreciated well-rounded uh, servants of God who who were underneath, maybe sat at his feet. I found this out. I never, like I said, had him in class, but you know, they they had interests in whether it was athletics or extracurricular activities like music and stuff in the arts, and it was just he was always interested in being supportive of that. Yep. He but, was yeah. he was one of the most gifted preachers I've ever had the privilege of listening to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of those, you walk into chapel at MLC and saw that it was Professor Deutschlander's turn, and you knew you were... You're going to get fed. You were in for a, a, an uplifting and, yeah. and thought-filled I think sermon. the way that he takes, you know, doctrine, true, that we all would, would, you know, maybe some of us in, in pastoral the, uh, ministry would know well and stuff like that, but the way he can... Break those down and look at the, the 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 key passages and explain them in a fresh, well, you know, in a in a logical, fresh way, keeping them alive and, and intense with a passion. Uh, it was just really a good gift. And I he had preached a sermon I heard at one of the national worship conferences, which starting in 1996 have been every three years. I don't know what the COVID yep. is doing with that whole plan, but at any rate. I forgot exactly the location. Was it up in St. Peter, Minnesota, or was it in Kenosha? It didn't matter. But his um, key worship service of that three- or four-day conference sermon, he preached on the gospel in a nutshell, John 3.16. And you're thinking, well, everybody knows that passage. It was spellbinding, you know, a good 25-minute sermon on just on. It was I wasn't there, but I've heard people talk about that sermon and how he only stopped because there was no more time that he could have gone on and (laughs) preached twice as long. Yeah. uh, Yeah, definitely. So that's a gift that the Lord uh, gave to him and his ability to grasp the scriptures and put it in clear ways to touch your heart. And and then he blessed our church body with that. So not having had him in class, there's a lot of students— 
maybe your era before and after who had them who really think extremely high. And I, I can only compare it to in my seminary days, and I was not in college, but there were many props that I really enjoyed, but probably the number one, and I've told his son this, is Dr. Siegbert Becker when we were at the seminary. He had that way of being able to communicate the good news of the Bible and just to touch your heart. I remember sitting in class with Dr. Becker my first year at the seminary and my cla- alphabetically my classmate and friend Phil Hoyer is across the aisle and Dr. Becker's just just explaining in the in Paul's captivity letters and probably it was something in Colossians or if it, whatever it was and uh, talking about what it meant and and I looked over at my classmate and he and I both we had tears running down our cheeks thinking you know what Jesus did it's for me it's you know it's just I know that my whole life since I'm baptized, but it's just striking you the way Dr. Becker would present it. It got so personal and so rich. That's uh, a beautiful thing, and I think there's parallel with the way Dr. Yeah. Uh, Professor Deutschlander would do that. Yeah. It's pretty cool. So anyway, good, before I get choked up here so, thinking about that. Well, it's cool to think that <laughs> yeah. that Professor Deutschlander is enjoying those gifts now, those just gifts that, that he dedicated his life to yeah. proclaiming and laying in front of people and, and pointing them forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, one no, of the subjects no, he's that, got the seat at that feast. One of the subjects that he was really good at, and it came out clearly in his doctrine book, and it also comes out in this book, is the theology of the cross. You know that we live in a world where it's sin infested and infected and infects us, and only because of Jesus can we go on. But with that view to the realities that are ours now already, and perfect enjoyment in heaven, you're able to cope with all the junk around us. And and certainly when you're reading a book like we are now on civil government, it, you're smack dab in front of what we call the theology of the cross, that we are carrying this cross as Christians, namely living in an imperfect world and an imperfect society and under an imperfect government with imperfect governing authorities whom we still are to respect. Yep. So it, that theme of his that he was had wove into a lot of his, I'm sure his teaching, but certainly in the way he wrote, comes out in this book and i think that's that's fitting that now with his understanding of the fact that yeah while we're living in this world these are constant reminders this is not our permanent home this is not our permanent home this is not our permanent home something better is coming and he's now there yeah isn't that that's just so cool right so we celebrate uh with uh, daniel deutschlander his his homecoming as we're talking about his book and his podcast chapter seven and eight huh yeah yeah, so what do you think about this chapter? This was a longer one, and these two together make 25 pages of the book, and I, podcasters, I'm sure, are having a blast with it, as I did. Uh, the Christian in politics, that as he begins on that first little section in this chapter 7 with that statement, the goal of our political activities must never be the creation of the kingdom of God on earth. Yeah, <laughs> that ties about, right into theology of glory. Theology yeah, I think of about cross, so right? many people I've bumped into or read about, you know, who are ready ready to make this world as best as possible and as as heavenly as possible. Well, it's not ever going to happen. Yeah, try, go ahead, but it's not your goal. As if the uh, the candidates who are in the party that I'm not a part of are <laughs> from the devil, and my candidates are <laughs> heaven sent. And as if we just get all of my candidates in, yeah. then we'll have this utopia that government should be. Well, no, that's confusing. Yeah. What's the purpose, and right. and what's God's plan with with all of? Or this? our government in America is so much better than any other because of its democratic roots and stuff like that in our constitution. That this is more God pleasing and better, and well. 
Yeah. That's and not and then the when says. when something threatens that, it's like it's like <gasps> my heaven's being taken away. Well, yeah. I probably am putting too much hope in in this government, which is a gift, admittedly a gift, and it's a yeah. blessing to be a part of this this nation, but um if when something threatens that gift, now I start to lose hope. I've been putting too much hope in that gift. Yeah. Are we surprised if we lose some of our freedoms? We probably ought not be. Would we be sad if we lose our freedoms for our gathered worship and for our proclamation? Well, of course, you know, we'd be sad. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we don't understand it's part of reality and it may be tough. You right. think about the Christians in the early church in the first century under persecution and and uh, later, after the New Testament is completed, the next couple centuries when it got worse, Diocletian, the emperor, Roman emperor, you know, way after Nero is is just uh, as terrible. And there were pockets of persecution that were worse than you could ever imagine under Nero. And then you go all the way through uh, history and see Christians, you know, under pressure from government or even church authorities that got their fingers into church government, earthly church authorities, and making it difficult and. I had a conversation with uh, Pastor Gerhard Wilde. So we in English would say Wilde, but Gerhard Wilde was the president of our sister church, which had been East Germany under the communist regime. And now, of course, Germany is united, and I had the privilege to be there three and a half, three years ago. And uh, I know his son, Martin, who at the time I was visiting three years ago was now the president, but he, Gerhard was there for this conference and we got talking, and I was asking about his story. And, you know, th- what he described to be a Christian and a Lutheran Christian and a confessional Lutheran Christian in East Germany as the Russian armies coming through his town. And his dad was the pastor. And it was known and clear that the R- Russian soldiers, and I don't want to gross anybody out, but they would literally drag people out of their houses and rape women and loot cities. They were just brutal, as brutal as we kind of picture that maybe the Hitler's army may have been or the Gestapo toward the Jews. And he says that as they were marching down the street, and they were going to come right by the church, it was right up on the street, but the parsonage was behind the church. And he, as a boy, uh, what age would he have been, you know, and, you know, he's 12, 13, or 18, and his dad and mom, I don't know if they were siblings, they're hiding upstairs in the attic. And, and and the Russian soldiers did not come behind the church of the Parsage, and they would have grabbed his mom and done untold horrors to him. And and, and the Lord Jesus protect, protected them and the holy angels, and they were able to survive. Then under the communist influence, they could only—they have very limited opportunities for gathered worship, and they had to do that privately and quiet, you know, that. But but the the, the congregation and, and the believers and their faith survived. Yeah. And they came out of communism. Now it's a struggle, obviously, in this— sort of spiritual wasteland of Europe, you know, to to thrive and to have the church. But they're proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and we had a chance to hear his stories. And So the governing authorities aren't always pleasant. They're still governing authorities, though. Right. Yeah, and it, it, it's good to have a perspective and a reminder. Yeah. Zoom out a little bit and see, would, would the end of protected gatherings and freedom of speech be the end of our church or the end of our faith? Clearly not. Because well, the church has existed and thrived. Yeah. Now there's a uh, coronavirus that's threatening our gathered <laughs> <laughs> worship. Right. And there are people who are pretty heated about. Um, I've even heard of uh, churches or pastors saying that we have to we have to ignore the mandates, and because God wants us to gather. Well, we're you know well well 
you know we're blessed to have the virtual worship and is is that is that appropriate would that be rebelling or resisting yeah so what would it be you know that we would say to a man oh we're going to gather with everybody anyway and just well, how does that in Professor Deutschlander brings this out in the chapters that we're reading and through the book how does that really honor God and serve our neighbor if we're going to ignore health mandates and say, forget the masks and forget the social distancing. We're all going to pile 400 people in a grace church. You know, well, would that really serve our neighbor best? Or would that jeopardize the health? Right. Which principle are you going to... Yeah. yeah, we have yeah. this freedom We have the freedom together, but, but the other principle of God's word is also that we want to do everything we can to show love to our community and yeah. to our neighbor. And hmm. I think take it to the next step. Okay, so you're going to stand on your on your God-given freedom to gather and worship. Sure. And then what happens if it does spread to your community and you're the church that ignored the mandate and so publicly refused to show love and now there are members of the community that are sick or dead. Yeah. That's like the end of your church's mission forever. Down, yeah. <laughs> you're the Down church, the road, now you're, you're the, the church one. that killed right. grandma. You're, you're the church that didn't care about the community in such right. a vivid way. Part like, of our yeah. outreach has to do with a good community identity. Right. It doesn't share the gospel with anybody, but it's important so people are attracted to us. But if we turn them away, then we don't have a vehicle and an opportunity to share the gospel. So maybe maybe it's worth taking yeah. a few months of limited yeah. um, to show we're all in this together. We don't feel like, well, we're the church, so it's never going to hit us. Or uh, <laughs> we have immunity when you walk through the doors. Clearly, mm-hmm. we don't have that promise from God. So right. let's do what everyone else is doing and, and show love. Yeah. I'm glad we're socially distant here in your office, so yeah. we're far enough away. So if I start spitting, I was, it's in when I speak. I was, into the, I was the loving enough to, you. to open the door to you so that you'd come <laughs> in. But yes, the, the chair is an appropriate distance away. <laughs> I'm not that loving. <laughs> <laughs> he starts hitting on some basic principles, doesn't he, in the beginning of this chapter, and how reason and natural law are closely tied together, right? And, and sometimes they end so. up in a very closer, similar place, but. Yeah. Um, to recognize that you can't, you can't live your, or you can't rule or, or be a governing leader based on, well, the Bible says so, so this is the way that <laughs> we're going to pass these laws. Exactly. Not everyone in, in government respects the Bible as an authority, nor is it an appropriate use of God's word. God, God didn't write the Bible as right. a civics textbook or uh, just follow these instructions and then government will, yeah. will go well, because that's not the, the role that God has given to government. He'll get to specific applications, then circle around at the end of the chapter to talk about them again. But I think just before we go, podcasters will find that one sentence, and um, it's on page 76 of the book near the—it's his last paragraph. Governments run on the gasoline of natural law and human reason. Not yep. a living word. That's just a great line. He br- and he brings it up a few times. Hope. He does. And remember. <laughs> and remember. <laughs> Governments run on the gasoline. <laughs> yeah. Human reason. Yep. So what do you think about his examples that he starts throwing out? He really doesn't have, like, how would you as a Christian deal with it in these situations until later in the chapter. But he brings up, for example, a school board or gambling and abortion. And So right. what, what do you think about those? I thought it was really good the way he brought those examples up. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's a temptation for a Christian to feel like that there's nothing, nothing to consider beyond what God has said. Uh, so... God has said um, creation, therefore, 
clearly I have to vote for creation to be taught in all the schools or God says prayer is good. So I have to, I have to support legislation that's going to put prayer back into schools. Like, like it's an issue is that simple and that clear cut. Yeah. Uh, But it seldom is. Um, It's this human reason. And to remember that um, it's not a, a, a body of believers with a with a unified confession of faith that right. lives in your community. Um, this isn't the church. Well, <laughs> so in, we can't in, in be a passing Christian, laws the yeah. way that that it can't. The government can't be run the way that a church is run, and it can't be led by the same things that a church is led by. And that strikes me as rather than interesting too. Just the subject that he brought up because it may have come up in the previous chapters. You know. If a Christian is in that situation where you're on the school board of a public school setting, you know, I would hope that a biblically-minded Lutheran confessional Christian would never even consider that the idea of having prayer in school, public schools or mandating a curriculum for creation would even be part of their thinking. That If I'm in that situation, I would... I would vote right away, N- absolutely not. I don't want the public school system teaching prayer and right. engaging in that. I don't want them to... Now, and that's if, a if, shocking statement, and I bet you we've got some podcasters that oh, are scratching yeah. their heads right now, but I right. agree. that that would. I don't want them teaching prayer. I would rather have no... I mean, I get the fact that I think I may be even tuning into your podcast you had with Pastor Strong, that, that a public school setting or a community would say in their schools that you could maybe offer a moment of silence where people can pray as they want. Students could quietly meditate or just, you know, pick their nose or do etchings on the on their on their carve their right. initials into their desk or they don't have that anymore. <laughs> but it's, it, that's that's too that's anecdotal. And no, that's uh, anachronistic. Sorry, that would be that's not the <laughs> so, you know, do whatever they want. And I, I could see that. But if not, then don't do it at all. That that's right. not the place. The prayer that you're that you're going to end up with is going to be one that's not a well, God pleasing prayer. Not only do you have the problem of a teacher who is, you know, Islamic or Hindu or pagan or even a heterodox Christian leading a prayer to either a false god or a god who's not the god of the Bible, or you end up with that whole fellowship issue. I'm supposed to join in prayer with people no. who don't even believe that there it, is a true it God. You know that prayer into that just talking to whomever. No, and, no. right. It's like the whole subject of putting Ten Commandments up in the because that's the basis for all moral. No, don't put that. Doesn't belong in public schools. That's not. I would never vote for that. Right. That's that's no. They're public schools, and their leaders and administrators are to use human reason and common sense. Do they often do that? Yes. Are there some examples where they don't? Yes. <laughs> so the same thing with evolution. I, I don't, if I'm on a school board in the public schools, I wouldn't be totally in favor of having, at least present that and creation as options that students can, that's fine. But to force and to say, you have to have creation you taught. You have to teach creation. Well, I don't know if I want a public school teacher who doesn't know a thing about the Bible or only knows bits, even teaching creation. Right. I would rather have them just teach evolution to be honest with you. And then when my kids are at home, teach them what the Bible says and say evolution's not the theory. It not, not, it's a theory and it's not right. Yeah. Creation is. Yeah, right. your public school teacher is not your pastor. Your That's public right. school teacher is not or your, your, parents. your father carrying out the role of spiritual exactly. leader in the home. Um, so I would rather have them teach false stuff about science, you know, evolution, 
and then correct it at home as the truth than to have them try to teach the truth next to error as they're both equally the same in options. Right. Because then the truth will come out as either watered down or incorrect. or It's just, it's not the role of government and its arm, the public schools, to do any kind of spiritual education. That became a really interesting part of living in Alaska was, what? so what do we do with my kids when I want to do mm. Christian education? And for some of our folks, the drive into Anchorage to our well school wasn't an option. So then it was, is it better to choose the pan-Christian school or the Catholic school that's in our town? Um, and you just kind of work this through and talk this through with parents. And so which 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 evil, which false doctrine is the more dangerous one? The one that's mm-hmm. so clear and obvious with flashing lights? Um, or the subtle. Or the one that's that's a subtle distortion or, or change. Right. Um, and, and that just became, you know, going into that discussion, they thought, well, of course a Christian school is going to be better than the public school. Yeah. So here's the challenge. Maybe, maybe now, not always, though. I've never been in that situation, obviously, because I grew up in the in the county where it's probably the most per capita county in the, the <laughs> world for Wells Lutherans, right. just to west of here by about 45, 40 minutes. But So I never was pitted, with, even in my ministry, pitted with this choice of, like you might have been, or families of yours that you were pastoring, right. to think about, is it public school or is it even a private education? Well, you know, what it reminds me of is in the Old Testament days, when you watch the divided kingdom occur, see, which was harder to deal with? The mixed worship of Jeroboam I, the first king of the northern kingdom, with his, okay, worship the true God, but add in and mix it together with a calf worship is what it was called. It was it was a mixture of probably, I would call it maybe uh, worshiping self-pleasure together with worshiping the true God. We'll put them together. We'll mush mm-hmm. them. Which is easier to handle and sort out and clean up? That or the outright, blatant, complete, get rid of the true God and do Baal worship? And I contend that it's cleaner and easier to say Baal worship wrong <laughs> right pit out, it against the true God. with that here's what we're going to replace peel it apart with. the onion layers of woven together truth and error is a trickier my my illustration would be let's say you're in Alaska and you got a, a member family and they're saying pastor what do I do public schools where it's going to be just well there's no religion at all nothing zero right. or this pan lutheran not pan pan christian environment where they're going to get uh, some religious instruction, but they're going to have it pretty obvious that infant baptism, baptism doesn't work. Right. So now you're going to deal with a family that either they're going to hear that creation is not an option and evolution is true, and you got to sort that out with people as their pastor, or the means of grace are not don't work and 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 then the doctrine of original sin is you know that i think it's harder to sort people through that that out of the 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 murk of an unclear understanding of original sin and the means of grace than it is to counter right paganism and my counsel to them was always um you know that putting putting your child in a religious setting but it's not a wells lutheran setting 
probably is going to now step up your responsibility to be pastor in your home yeah. and to, to be able to sort out and have an active involvement in, let me talk, let's talk about religion class yeah. and let's open up a Bible and see yeah. and, and parse between truth and error that was presented to you. Well, then um, you got all the other practical stuff that what do you do when they have chapel services right. and, and prayer before classes in this sort of non-denominational school setting? Now you got to teach your kids at age four and five about the Doctrine Church Fellowship, too which usually takes some Christian maturity to sort right. through and make right decisions. Where in your public school, they're not praying, which they shouldn't, and they just learn, hopefully, good educational material. And so, so it's a part of that discussion that was coming up in the chapter that I thought was fascinating, and I'm glad you brought up your Alaska illustration because yeah. it made me think of that. The problem, though, is you know when you get into these other subjects he brought up, and he'll talk about that later, like a gambling, but it legalized abortion is such a hot topic. Right, and I'm glad that he that he brought yeah, it up. He was able to just bring it up, but can you imagine what he gets to in this? He'll talk about that later in the chapter. The answer appears to be the most reasonable is the way to go if you're doing a ballot box on that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we should save our comments on that till we get later in the chapter. He had. T- I don't know if you want to move on with that business of the problem with reason is. Sin. Sin. We use human reason in making decisions of what we do under our earthly governments, but uh, the problem is even Sin reason gets in the way. <laughs> it just does. <laughs> Doggone it, right? So what seems reasonable in making decisions may not be the same for every human being. To be sure, God left human beings with minds and the ability to think some things through. <laughs> Some moral outward choices become obvious, and some aren't so obvious. And that's that's right. the challenge of Christian living, is it not? So what did you think about that chapter as it unfolded as we get into the pages 80 to 82 and beyond? I, I thought it was good because of, um, just to bring out that it's not always as clear-cut as we think it might be. That's, that's uh, right. Or that it exposes the times that, maybe what we really are hoping for is for the church to take over the government yeah. or the government to morph into and become the church and do the job that God has given <laughs> to the church or that God has given to Christian parents. Yeah. Um, sometimes what we're really hoping for is not what we really, really want when you actually take that to, right. so what does that mean? So that means public school teachers that are going to be presiding over a classroom and it means that they're going to, and what does that really look like? It's going to end up being watered down and not really the Bible glory that you're mm-hmm. looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to end up in, in these precarious fellowship or what doctrine, uh, what version of Christianity are we teaching? You know, exactly. if you asked Joe Schmo church member, would it be better if the government was more Christian? They're probably going to say, well, yeah. Well, I think Deutschland even says that too, right. because maybe it's going to be more grounded in some uh, morals that we would say also match what the scriptures say, but that's not where they're supposed to come from. But, it comes from human reason. Right, right. But then, so do we want the government to be uh, taught in Christianity? Yeah. And, well, no. Let's, that's going to be problematic. That's it's not their job. Not, right. And if it becomes their job, then they get to dictate to me what gets said in the pulpit mm-hmm. and um, that that goes to a place pretty quickly where we don't want it to go and would be yeah. even uncomfortable on the other side. It's like we're in the ditch on the one side, but the answer isn't to be in the ditch on the other side. Here's <laughs> we're some, not in a, any better of a spot then. Here, here's something related. Just based on what you were just saying, it made me think of this. 
uh, it's not really government, but how about this illustrating? Because you were talking, I think, and and wisely so about you know the human reason and the role that plays. And but now we're trying to affect behavior. It goes it goes to what's in the heart from our biblical perspective. That is what affects behavior, and not outward you know mandates or whatever. But apply that, for example, to scouting. See, the objection that I would have to having my kids participate in scouting isn't that I don't like camping or that they shouldn't learn how to tie knots. That's all great. Hang out with friends and learn the outdoors and learn how to start a fire and yeah, that's camp. Lo- if you don't lovely. have to build the campfire, then uh, yeah. that's better, right? It's, it's, really, it's <laughs> all good things. But when, when the general principle behind scouting is good habits make you into a better person. So the motivation for your living a certain way, a moral way, is is outward behavior motivates outward behavior. You know, habits generate, that'll make you into a morally good person. So the motivation for good living is I want to look better or please others or, you know, whatever. When from a Christian perspective, Bible perspective, our motivation for living is always Jesus and what he did for us. And then out of gratitude for what God gave us in Christ Jesus, now we live our life of thanks and we learn how to tie knots and go. It's it's the same behavior, you know, canoeing and, and helping and being, you know, walking old lady across the street or whatever. That's all the same behavior outwardly, but the motivation for it is different in scouting than it is in a biblically grounded home. And that's my concern if families want their kids involved. I get it, you know, that they, they want their kids to experience activities. But my concern is what is the, what is the, kid, what is the child learning as a motivation for right. their life? When you set up a church and then remove any semblance of real law or gospel, um, there's no... What happens when I fail to be the citizen that yeah. that I claim to be and and swear to be, um, and then you throw in the element of every other religion has equal grounding mm-hmm. and standing and and uh, I have to, I, I'm putting my kid in a place where they can't practice church fellowship. In fact, they're being told we all are the same, and yeah. as long as you're a, a believer in something, then it's good. So, in um, a sense, you know, scouting is based on the same principles we would hope that a government using common sense and reason, and its natural law implanted in us, well, fuzzy uh, decisions on making, you know, moral uh, codes or anything that would support uh, general morality, has to be based on reason. Right. And even though flawed. Yep. And that, that puts a Christian sometimes in very difficult spots. I think on page 82, there are podcasters who may not have the book or read it, but this is worth uh, quoting here. There's still a problem over sin. Uh, sin has no com- has so completely infected our nature that our reason, even though it can can function in non spiritual things, often fails to function properly. And then the next paragraph: uh, people <clears throat> may not give proper weight to what really is important. They may confuse what they want with what is rational and think the two are the same. Yeah, the car analogy I thought was good. <laughs> Just because you want a car, then you convince yourself you need that car. Yeah. If that's really an emotional decision, right? So that he carried forward, and then his famous way he does in this book, and he summarizes with four numbered points. I thought that was really good. It's a wonderful society and government uh, that can. It's a wonder that society and government can even survive. Wow, <laughs> in this wicked world. But the summing up is that human reason is by nature dead, but it's uh, not dead in a purely physical sense. 
And even in matters of outward morality, people can make rational, logical choices. And the fact that people can make choices doesn't mean that they always do make reasonable ones. Yeah. <laughs> this made me uh, made me think of what one of the arguments between political parties is, is how do we take care of the poor? Who's, oh, yeah. Whose responsibility is it? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one party says we should have all these government programs so that we are doing the biblical thing of showing love to neighbor and taking care of the poor. and. Um, another side might might say, "Well, that's my job as a Christian to to do, and I shouldn't have to yeah. increase my taxes so that the government can carry out what God's word has told me that should be my responsibility." Right. Um, and I think that is a just a great example of now we have a reason choice. You could have a godly a godly motivation behind going on to either side either of side. that argument, right? right? Mm-hmm. So now my reason kicks in and says which is going to take advantage of which is going to get it taken care of in a better fashion which is going to open itself up to less abuse or yeah or uh whose responsibility is because abuse can fall on either side right Right. if you go with a a lower or a non-existent welfare society you might have people so greedy they are not compassionate to the poor and the down and out at all the downtrodden at all if you go on the side of forced socialism you may be taking care of uh, those who are down and out and downtrodden, but you also might set the stage for those who then become lazy and figure there's just going to be a handout. So, right, is it really helping? Is it the really poor person to give them just give so? Where them are cash? you in the balance? You know, right? As a Christian, how do you walk that middle road? And your government authorities and leaders may not be in the middle; they may be on one side or the other. And so, now as a Christian, to make decisions, if you're going to like say go to the polls and vote for one uh, system or another. It's just, it's a difficult, sinful world we live in. Right. And then now the sin, the temptation is going to be anyone who comes to the conclu- a different conclusion than I do. Yeah. You're just going to highlight the negative side and <laughs> you're an idiot because you're just enabling people right. or, or you're unloving because you don't want the government to have right. this welfare system. And it's really easy to put your finger in the eye of the other person and, and accuse or assume it's an unbiblical or an unloving stance that right. causes them to feel the way they do versus this well, gets real it gets real personal in my life too because of my wife's career as a psychologist you know you're thinking that there are people obviously who struggled to be able to get appropriate mental health care you know and uh, unless there is some kind of compassion for the downtrodden who do not have the resources or insurance whatever to support that there are people who are going to really struggle. That'd be the same for physical maladies and physical illnesses from diabetes to whatever. So, you know, where is our compassion for those who are really hurting and need help? And on the other hand, how do we balance that on the other side with not taking advantage of uh, people and, and the system and becoming, you know, let's say, lazy and my okay i don't have to work or i don't right. whatever because it's going to be good enable that you know I mean? behavior and perpetuate it but you don't want to come across either if you're on the side of saying oh the welfare system maybe is overblown and whatever people take advantage of it so we shouldn't have one well then you then you come across as being cold-hearted not yeah. compassionate that's right. not right either and you can't just say well anything that could be taken advantage <laughs> of we can't do yeah uh, well now everything is gone right because <laughs> yeah. anything could not you're back to we're sinners living in a fallen world. Yeah. Wow. The challenging, and I think that uh, uh, the good Professor Deutschlander was pretty good at bringing that out 
He talks about the Christian's advantage, of course, because we do know what the Word of God says. Right. But that doesn't mean that we're going to have easy choices on pages 85 and following. There were some really gems that he had in that section. I thought the top of page 86 really is, is really worth highlighting again. He says, for example, now what do you do as a, as, a, as a Christian when you have candidates that have opposite positions? So candidate A opposes abortion on demand, but also insists... Schools teach only evolution, or perhaps favors a bill that would legalize homosexual marriage. Candidate B has the opposite position on each of those issues. The Christian will sometimes have difficulty deciding which issues are most important. Yeah. So it's not it's it's complex and it's not easy to do as a Christian. He makes a great encouragement to be now when it comes to in our setting, in our society, where we actually do have come input with the vote, to be as well informed as possible. And then you just make your decisions, and it's never going to be perfect. Yep. I, I highlighted one sentence in there that I yeah. thought was a good what was that? summary. We will weigh the potential for damage and for good as we try to make the best choice possible. Yeah. Because there is no perfect candidate, and there is no perfect platform, <laughs> and there is no, uh, until Jesus is on the ballot, there's not going to be um, the absolute best candidate ever who's going to do everything <laughs> in right. a God-pleasing way. But our, and so yeah. I'm going to have to weigh out potential damage and potential good. And yeah, I, I like the way he's I wrapping can. up that section, though, too, with that statement about um, our goal is always to serve the neighbor. That's what we're, you know, honor God and serve the neighbor. So he brings that in again, that principle we mentioned earlier. And I think that's that's good. And then, of course. Yeah, it's more than just what's best for me yeah. on the ballot, right? I've got this responsibility to serve neighbor, and the government is, is there. Its sole responsibility is to take care of people, mm-hmm. to take care of its citizens. Yeah. So there might be something that's super good for me, super advantageous, but really lousy and cruddy for everyone else. Now, yeah. what do I do? What do you do? I can't just selfishly choose what's going to be best. Exactly. I would get, uh, I lived in a parsonage in my former life and I would get people that would come around and ask for uh, uh, me to sign a petition for, you know, either raising or lowering property taxes. And I always felt like, well, I'm exempt from paying property taxes (laughs) as a renter. So it would kind of be disingenuous or, or a a bond would come on the, Oh sure. uh, And, it's just going to raise people's property taxes is how we're going to pay for this. Like, well, I'd love to have beautiful parks, but I don't know that I can selfishly just say I want everyone else to pay. So <laughs> sometimes that becomes an issue too, is yeah. what would be best for everyone, what's going to serve uh-huh. neighbor best, even if me personally, it's not going to be impacted, or maybe I'm giving up something that would be an adv- an advantageous yeah. thing for me. That's a great illustration of the situation we Christians find ourselves many times. It's difficult choices to make, and it's not easy. A reminder, well, we live in a sinful world, and... Um, I thought that, you know, as he wraps that little section up, that we may not always agree with one another was a good line to remind, because now we're living in uh, American society, 21st century, where there is such a divide, and people aren't satisfied that they disagree and then say, okay, we're going to agree to disagree, and I'll respect your position. No, we have to vilify and sling mud, and even after decisions are made, continue to be angry and upset and, and it's very divisive your own camp now and yeah. everyone in the other camp is, <laughs> the, is devil. the spawn of satan <laughs> and everyone in my camp is 
pure and holy. And yeah, um, with the current election that's coming up in our country and every election, but there was something coming up this next section that I thought was really something. Sometimes Christians with no honorable alternatives may have no choice but to leave the political decisions to others. So what do you do? Do you just you say I'm not going to vote? Well, you know. May have to just pray or run for office, or you know, he's not <laughs> be, encouraging that. Be, be the solution, yeah. You know, and he's not encouraging you know skipping your right to vote or everything. But it's interesting he brings that up as all the realms of possibility that a Christian can have. Right? <laughs> is it is there a potential where neither one of these candidates I think is a role model for my children? Yeah. Neither one of these is a squeaky clean person. But now the law of love for neighbor, which I think is going to put me in a me and my neighbor in a better right. situation uh, maybe that's uh tier b and it's unfortunate that you don't have a a d- definitive uh choice on tier a but then move down to to tier b or, yeah. or maybe still i don't have it i'm going to vote for a third party and uh, vote for someone who i know is not going to win an election but uh, maybe moves moves the needle towards the future of getting out of a hopeless situation. I mean, it's, it's possible. It's yeah, sad. Yeah. It's yeah. sad when yeah. it has to be that way, but huh. um, the different things and principles and what, what's running through the mind of the Christian as they're casting well, a vote. Yeah, the business of then he had courage to say, well, how about you get, you know, the, the readers to, to get in, maybe get involved. But imagine being in that position. I'm not, you're not, but I've often thought, what if I were in a position to be involved in a political role an elected official as a as a Christian and a biblical Christian, how do you actually make some decisions when you're when you have your morals based clearly on the Word of God, and yet your common sense and reason tell you you better make a decision in such a way for the greater good of the community, which may be at conflict with I the yeah. illustration I used to use all the time. I guess I still use it once in a while. What if I'm a judge and I'm in divorce court? And I'm a Christian. I know what the Bible says. And I grant to Mr. and Mrs. Jones a divorce based on incompatibility or, you know, whatever, irreconcilable differences. And then later that afternoon or the next week, I'm at church and I'm voting to excommunicate Mr. Jones because he refused to repent of his unfaithfulness and he is refusing Jesus and loving Christian admonition. You know, so on one hand, as a judge, I'm saying, yeah, it's okay. But as a Christian, I'm saying, no, it's not okay. You know, so. Right. And it seems inconsistent, but yeah. it's what role are you serving in, right? <laughs> but I'd say both of those are God-pleasing yeah. functions and vocations. It seems to, to weird, though, out. isn't it, that you're on yeah. the, But that, those, that's the situation once in a while we Christians are in, and it's that highlighted in that section he had in the problem for Christians in the political arena and the connection between religious and political convictions. Yep, and then he brings uh, the abortion example there that— we can know as Christians that murder is wrong and life begins at conception, but yeah. um, we're going to need to have a more compelling case and, right. and use more reason when um, presenting this in a political venue. You know, before we go to the next chapter, I thought the end of this chapter, though, was uh, just a really brilliant way of him articulating what could be on, on the minds and in the mouths and the lips of God's people when faced with these difficult things, you know, like the abortion issue in the bottom page, you know, 89, medical, you know, just how would you present an argument in a in a common sense way? And you may not win the day, but without saying this is what the Word of God says, you know, you, right. you, because that you can't do that in the basis of human reason and common sense. And the same thing was true with his example about creation. 
And um, I thought that was a nice way in wrapping up this chapter that he almost actually illustrated what could be on our lips if a Christian is in such a position to get into that debate without jamming the Bible down someone else's throat when that's really not the the role for uh, a political common sense right. discussion. That's turning government and church. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Should we move on to chapter the next eight. chapter? What do you think about soldiers, soldiers and war? Soldiers, war, and courts. Yeah, so those are three great topics of ap- applying these principles now. Right, so uh, he talks about um, can you even be a soldier as a Christian because mm-hmm. one of the main jobs is they give you a, a deadly weapon yeah. and, and, and your people. responsibility is going to be uh, go stand guard and shoot someone who yeah. who uh, is the enemy in a war or who... Who does you know fill in the blank as a security force if they cross the line, whatever the line might be, mm-hmm. and rules of engagement would be you're you're the one who's charged with the safety of others, and that might mean taking the life of someone right. else, so is that murder? Do we have to say no, you can't uh <laughs> carry out this function yeah. because it is flawed in its very essence and we would say no the government has been given the sword right. one of the ways that the government carries out its responsibility to protect others is sometimes to take a life whether it's in a police or military setting or through capital punishment when mm-hmm. the when the courts would would weigh in and and seek to carry yeah. that out as a way of yeah of curbing violent behavior comes right out and he says it's not murder Right, you know, so I think you articulated that really well. What he has here There's in a this difference book between killing and chapter. murder, right? Right, there is, and um, I thought he did a nice job, and you summarize it well there too. Of course, that raises up in the mind of any Christian who's thinking about this, the soldier role, about the whole subject of just and unjust wars. And so that's the next part of the book chapter that he gets into, and you know, who's to make the call? Because in my common sense view, it may be different, and I may not have all the facts behind. Right. I might say as a Christian, I want to object and and I won't want to serve as a soldier because I feel in my heart that this is an unjust war, but right. I may not know all the circumstances how, behind. How often does the second lieutenant in the U.S. Army have the data and intelligence yes. to know what this war is actually about? Um, I would say almost never, right? Mm-hmm. That soldier has got a commanding officer and mm-hmm. it works its way up to... Sure the guys who are making the big bucks and have the intelligence mm-hmm. and understand. And is there going to be a, a measure of trust involved in mm-hmm. you guys aren't just, we're not just really going to steal resources and oil. And I know that was the Gulf war. That was the accusation, right? This is all about oil. Yeah. We um, just want to keep, well, if going. it is that simple, uh, then you were probably going to have a problem, right? We're not going to go and take people's lives so that we can have some resources or we can steal some money from people. Um, but, there needs to be this this benefit of the doubt to be able to say maybe mm-hmm. I don't see it or the the evidence that I have before me it makes this seem questionable or maybe even this is tipping it for me towards this is an unjust mm-hmm. war that I shouldn't participate in. I think there's still room for the Christian to say, but my God-given leader, mm-hmm. I, I hope and pray they have more understanding and information than, than I have and that it is bigger than this. And I can yeah. still, in good conscience, and I like the way he said it in that section, that uh, the blood and guilt will be then on the leaders who have made the ungodly decision and not on the soldiers who, yeah. who are seeking to faithfully carry out their responsibilities. I thought he did a good job yeah. of that because, you know, he's writing from the experience of a man who's now in heaven but had been around 
from his youth and coming out of World War Two. But the 20th century, as he mentions in the book, was just, you know, just, you know, the war to end all wars, World War One wasn't the war. You know, there's a lot more. And so in his lifetime, he would have not been born yet, but World War One had its effects were still out there. Mm-hmm. Then you get the World War Two, Korean conflict and war and. Professor and Deutschlander would call that the second great misunderstanding. Um, he would pl- he would I- in jest and not really defending Germany, but because he's the German professor, and yeah, of course. He, he would say it just a, just a misunderstanding. World War Two yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a chuckle. We know he didn't actually feel that way. Exactly. <laughs> well, that you know that that does it does raise up though in contemporary uh, speak in twenty first century. For the Christian to think through, you mentioned the Gulf War, you know, that's, that's back a couple decades ago already yep. now, and you move through that to Afghanistan, you still see conflict in the Middle East. And, you know, so one of the problems that I've come across personally is I could say that I side with, because I'm, I'm an American citizen and I can see protecting our rights in, globally and in um, commerce and economics and keeping a balance of power and trying to use our American influence, if you will, to at least keep some kind of peace so there's not just uh, warring. But I had not spent a lot of time in my life, I'm trying to learn a little more now, understanding even those countries or those groups or those tribes, they're not just countries, that have different views of Islam. You know, the, the Shia and the, and the Sunni branches of mm-hmm. Islam, and there are more. I don't quite, I can't say that I have a clear grasp of what internal conflict there are among the groups, among Islamic groups. There certainly have to be, and I'm sure there are, Islamic groups that are not uh, claiming that the Islamic religion or it's the way it plays out in politics in their countries or tribes has to include jihad, holy war against Christians. There are some who would say no. And so I don't think I have a grasp on the tension that goes on internally in those and and we here then sit in our little safety watching our stealth bombers go flying over and bomb cities and stuff like that in middle eastern countries and stuff like that and is it it's you know where does the islamic religion play in and for the freedom for the christians too because i do know that in some of the islamic countries christians are persecuted does that mean we should go in as americans you know and bomb them up and no but it's it's a lot more but, complicated, right? Than, regime a war for the sake of a regime change could be uh, us carrying out our responsibility as the most powerful nation on the earth to yeah. defend the rights, the civil rights of those in mm-hmm. in this country that are being abused or, or terrorized, or yeah. uh, if there's genocide happening. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to present that as well. We just think we should have democracy all over, and every we should put little pockets right. of America over in the Middle East, which clearly wouldn't be uh, a justification. But um, so it's a, it's you know we got to be careful what we're saying on a podcast. I mean, this is out in the internet, and people get so you got to be very very careful. We want to be respectful and honor God and serve others in the best possible way. But how that all plays out, and I guess my point is in global politics is not as clear yeah. as there's the bad guys over there and they're attacking our shores, bombing Pearl Harbor, whatever, and we need to protect and defend and even maybe support, let's say, an ally overseas for the for the good and the peace of our global, global situation. Right. So 
it's it's a lot more complicated when you know you're we have a more connected world now with the internet and with all the media stuff like that it's just it's it's not as easy for a christian to sort through where do i come down on the side of soldiering and war and things like that it's, yeah when when there's a direct threat to the safety mm-hmm. of an american that becomes a little bit more clear cut and obvious right. when it's an ally it maybe is taking a step further away when it's just protecting mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's who who gets to decide what's the global court that gets to decide when a ruler is bad or good or yeah. when it's dangerous or and that's where it does get sticky. So here's and, one that that is just I got to I don't know if I should even mention, but I guess now I'm into it. I'll tell you. So you you are you know that sometimes as a pastime besides you know watching sports on TV that I enjoy um fiction in the realm of international spy and intrigue and maybe even detective stories. It's just it, fascinating to look at mysteries sure. and try to solve those. It's interesting. But one book that I recently finished, and I'm not going to tell you what it is or the author, but it, the, the plot line. No spoilers. Okay, I guess right, if right. you don't tell me what book. Then. No, I won't. I'll, I'll tell you after the It'll podcast. Be, this is sounding familiar. This is after I the think podcast. Pastor Hebner might have ruined this uh, the plot of this book, <laughs> maybe. It was a, it was a book written by I think the author's series is, is he's is, there is somebody else who picks up on his name and it's uh, anyway the, the the book though uh, and I I'm trying to think of the copyright date it probably was around 2017 2018 and the plot line had to do with an Islamic uh, uh, radical leader who for the sake of power and control not just in the Middle East, but he also wanted to damage what he felt was, you know, the Satan, in, uh, which would be American. The great Satan. The, sure. the great Satan, yeah. And, yeah. and, and not just our, in, our military, because he knew that from his, in the book, that he could never, with enough soldiers, overcome our military might and our Navy and whatever. But the way he wanted to destroy the American influence was to break down our society's ability to cope with um, um, each other and our economic system and our infrastructure. And so the plot of the book that this uh, radical Islamic leader on the Middle East had come up with was he found somewhere in a Middle Eastern country um, a small village that had a virus that was killing all the villagers. And he forced the medical scientists who were trying to deal with this to multiply that, you know, as these villagers died out, to preserve this virus and then make it lethal in the sense that he would infect some of his, like five or six of his warriors who would be like suicide people, who were then shipped secretly through the idea was through the Central America and then into America and then go to cities and airports and start infecting people with a virus that people would, the hospitals would be overwhelmed and then eventually our country and our nation would, you know, have economic damage and our whole society and our American society would fall apart. And it, the, the good guys in the, in the America, you know, like that, discovered the plot and were able to stop it at the border 
But this was a book that was written just like a couple years before now we have this. <laughs> I thought it was like, oh, I'm reading this book during the time when there is a global <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> you know, so I'm not saying that, that the current coronavirus is uh, because some, some political plot from some place in the globe that they're out to. Uh, but I just thought it would be interesting that, you know. Our podcast has thing. now been flagged by the government. Yeah, this so probably. Th- yeah, so thank you. Got, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. They'll appreciate, though, because we're, we're pro government <laughs> in this podcast. So. Yeah. <laughs> What does that say, though? I mean, in the context of the book as a Christian, you know, who who knows, you know, about these little plots? We don't we don't that that go on globally and stuff like that. So where do we as a Christian fit when there is such a thing as war? When there's such a thing as soldiering? And what? Right. How do we how do we respond to our governments trying to keep peace and, and safety? And you know, and there's certainly. Um, it's not beyond the realm of possibility for for us to say the government is probably acting in our country's best interest mm-hmm. by not exposing all of their intelligence and the way that it's been gathered. And <laughs> how is it that, you know, how come not everyone knows about this? Well, because it wouldn't be good for you to, yeah. for this to be public. So you're just going to, at times, just no pun intended, soldier on and just follow what your, what your sure. commanding officer um, has to say mm-hmm. and will give the benefit of the doubt and say, I hope and pray that, this, this is deeper than what it looks like on the surface, right? And in good conscience, I'm going to continue. You said something really important right there too. That finally, as a Christian citizen, then what do we do? Hope and pray, right? And and finally, we know that it's not going to be perfect in our government or the way things are handled globally and our government's involvement. And we, and even here locally, and we may disagree on mandates or <laughs> related to a virus or to some other things, but. Finally, we, we still can go to our God in prayer and know that the ultimate goal, heaven, is ours. Jesus is still the Savior, and we'll still keep proclaiming good news best we can, whether it's streaming or however. And it, it, we soldier on yeah. as, as Christians, you know, in the spiritual mode. Yeah. With the gospel. So he goes on in this section beyond the soldier to talk about Christians in court. Yep. Yeah, that one, I think that our podcasters will enjoy reading. It does have a lot to do with, you know, his examples that he had with um, uh, from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. And I think that's just a, a fun read to refresh and how the right. Apostle himself stood up and in court and had to, you know, call in his citizenship at the right time in the right place. And Right. In order to defend his own reputation, in order to defend his ministry, mm-hmm. um, he needed that. The, that legal yeah. stamp of approval or, or needed to stand up for a right that was being taken away from him. So wh- where's your heart? Is it vengeance? Is it uh, yeah. to greed? take advantage of mm-hmm. and, and gain for yourself? Well, then clearly we need to confess of those sins. But are, are there times where the legal system could work in our, in our favor and, and mm-hmm. uh, help and, and where loving a neighbor might involve seeking for uh-huh. some someone to be tried and and convicted or seeking for remuneration to be made um i think there are times that that, that the law of love would require yeah um some sort of action to be taken to protect yeah. the next victim or to he had the um, as a nice illustration right. that chapter so i thought these couple chapters were a lot to talk about a lot to learn and it was it was fun to discuss uh, in the podcast i hope our podcast and our readers of the book really enjoy these chapters as they are the rest of the book. There's more to come, obviously, and uh, it's 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 been a pleasure to think these things through again and make them fresh in our mind about how we live in a real world 
as citizens of two kingdoms. Right. And to recognize that both of those kingdoms are, are a gift that God gives us for yeah. our good. And we're glad for that. And we also know yeah. this is most, most certainly certain true. true. Thanks for listening. To learn more about God's grace or to support the work that we do to proclaim the love of Jesus in Milwaukee and around the world, visit www.gracedowntown.org. This grace is for you.